0: 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. On April 12th, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested in Birmingham, Alabama for breaking a city injunction. Against parading and boycotting and picketing. And to be sure, Dr. King fully intended to break that law. He knew well aware what, he was well aware of what he was doing. Um, he was part of a coordinated, nonviolent campaign against segregation in the South. Upon his arrest, Dr. King was taken to a Birmingham jail where an ally of his smuggled in a local newspaper from that same day. And in that local newspaper, from that same day, an open letter was published entitled A Call for Unity. And in that open letter, the case was made that those social injustices did, in fact, exist in the city, that those injustices should be taken up strictly in the civil courts and not on the city streets. Four days later, on April 16, 1963, Dr. King responded with his own letter, the now famous letter from a Birmingham jail. In that later, Dr. King defends the strategy of nonviolent resistance to institutionalized injustice. You, I'm sure you've heard them. There are some very memorable lines in the letter. Dr. King writes, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And this quote from St. Augustine, an unjust law is no law at all. In fact, if you read the letter, you'll notice that Dr. King repeatedly cites biblical and Christian authorities to make his case, not just Augustine, but also Thomas Aquinas, and those young rebels in the Babylonian Empire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to obey the king's edict and were thrown into the fiery furnace. Dr. King cites these Christian authorities not simply because he was writing primarily in and to the American South which Flannery O'Connor still called at that time a Christ-haunted place. He cites those Christian and biblical authorities because the open letter published against him four days earlier was authored by eight prominent Christian ministers in Birmingham. The point is this. This was not simply a public debate about how to address injustice. This was a Christian debate it was a Christian debate between those committed to living out faithfully the vision of Jesus Christ. And at least one of the questions being addressed between those letters was this How are we as Christians to live under the authority of leaders who, at best, don't share our convictions or, at worst, act unjustly? What is the responsibility of Christians? of the church living for the kingdom of God inside the kingdom of man. Now of course, those two letters weren't the first crack at solving the dilemma. Uh, 2,500 years ago, the church was taken into captivity in Babylon, and ever since then, the church has struggled to understand her responsibility to God in conflict with civil governance. It's a question that the apostle Peter takes up for us this morning. I need to be honest with you, there was a time not long ago when I would have seen the title of this sermon and immediately wanted to check out and dream about where I was going to have lunch. I'm not giving you freedom to do that this morning, I'm just telling you. This would have been among the last things that I cared to hear about from the pulpit, mainly because I perceive that there is a long, inglorious history of making a mess out of politics and religion, at dinner tables and from the pulpit. That is exactly why we are committed here at PCPC as a pastoral staff, we are committed to preaching through books of the Bible, and not just preaching about the topics that we care about. Because when you do that, you end up confronting the things that God cares most about in the right proportion, and not simply the things that you feel passionate about in the moment. There's some irony, I think, that I have to be up here this morning addressing the intersection of politics and religion, because my name was on the pulpit for February the 5th. But here's the thing. This is indeed God's word for us, and the apostles believed, they deeply believed, that our engagement with the civil world was part of what it meant to be faithful to the vision of Jesus Christ. Here's how I want us to proceed this morning. First thing I want us to do is I want us to understand The story in Peter's life, I think, that serves as a backdrop for these instructions. There's a story here, Peter's story, and it is critical, I think, to understanding the letter. So first, Peter's story. Second, I want us to look at what was it that most formed Peter's views on this dilemma? You'll notice in the very first verse, he says, do these things, he says, for the Lord's sake. And sometimes we can read over that as just some some nice religious language attached to a command, but I really think we need to, to pause and consider what that meant for Peter. What did it mean to do that for the Lord's sake? And then finally, I want us to look at how we're to live. What might be some of the consequences for us? So if you're keeping score at home, Peter's story, Peter's clarity, and finally, the consequences for us. 1 Peter's story, let's look again at verses 13 through 14. The first few verses, Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. Peter says, as you sit right now, that it is the will of God that you submit to the very authorities whom God has placed over you. It is God's will for your life that you and I submit. Now, with those words in mind, I want to take you back 35 years to test how well Peter himself practiced his own counsel in conflict with injustice. The setting is this. Peter has attached himself to a controversial rabbi named Jesus. For three years now, Peter has lived under Jesus' authority and teaching and slowly Peter has become one of Jesus' most passionate leaders. But recently in the journey, Jesus has increasingly alluded to the fact that he intends to die. And not just sort of accidentally, but his death will be not only an imminent, but a critical part of the will of God, of the plan of God to bring salvation to the world. And for whatever reason, Peter has just not had ears to hear it. He is utterly out of step with Jesus' intention to die. And so the time comes. It happens one night in a garden. Jesus is betrayed by a member of his inner circle. And the civic authorities come with an armed mob, essentially, to arrest Jesus. They have no criminal cause. The authorities are clearly acting unjustly. And they've come brandishing weapons to prove how committed they are to get the job done. And so here is Peter's opportunity. Peter's opportunity to show us exactly what it looks like to live faithfully in conflict with the leaders whom God has placed over us. Now, you may know what happens. Peter is packing heat, right? Texans will be proud. And Peter takes out his sword and he strikes over ever so accurately at the ear, the ear of the servant of the high priest. Maybe it was a miss, maybe it was a warning shot, not sure, but it was the ear. And what does Jesus do immediately? His Lord and Rabbi, how does he respond? The first thing Jesus does is he goes and he heals the wound of his enemy. The same enemy under whom he will place himself a few minutes later. And then Jesus turns to Peter and he says this. He says, Peter, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels to come to my deliverance? Peter, do you really think that I need your force? That I need your passion, that I need your zeal, that I need your strength in order to accomplish my kingdom? Peter, your zeal to set the world right, your passion for justice, it's a religious cloak hiding underneath you a deep, deep failure to trust me. It's not only that you've got the means wrong, it's that you've chosen the wrong means because you lack the faith to believe, though things are not as they should be, I am still in charge. Peter, you have no faith. Now, of course, this will be proven out here in a few scenes because Peter will be approached later on by a little servant girl at a campfire, not uh, not an official with a sword, and she'll ask him if he knows Jesus. And do you remember what Peter says? He says, no, I don't know him, denies knowing him and runs away. So what can we say about Peter immediately in this first recorded conflict between him and the unjust civil authorities, we can say this, that Peter is very quick with the sword, but he is slow with faith. Peter is quick with passion. He is quick with zeal, but he is slow to trust God. Let me put that same question to us this morning. Could it be that our own passion for the moral high ground, our own zeal for what we believe is right, is often a cover for our failure to trust God. You say, Chad, what do you mean? Well, I mean this. If we find ourselves using the weapons of this world, even if they're for a good cause, the swords of slander, of mischaracterization of the people that we oppose, of unkindness, of self-righteousness, of pride, Or if we find ourselves so deeply anxious about the condition of our world that we can't see the mercies of God and His promise to set the world right. Maybe Jesus wants to rebuke in us a failure to trust Him in our hearts underneath all that passion. You know, it's funny. Peter tells these early Christians to submit to the pagan authorities for the Lord's sake. And then in verse 16, he says this, That they are free to live in the freedom that God has given them. And it's like Peter is telling them that the only way you can submit to the civil authorities in the right way is to find the freedom that first comes from submitting to God's authority over you. Peter says there is a freedom that comes from living under the authority of God. And in that freedom, you'll actually be able to submit in the right way to the governors whom God has placed over you. Now if that's true, what would that freedom look like? What does that look like? What does freedom in the face of injustice, how does it flush itself out? Well, let's fast forward for a moment to the next encounter that Peter has with the civil authorities. This is a man in trouble a lot. This is Acts 4. Peter and his buddy John, both apostles, are. Luke tells us they're boldly preaching the good news of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And the civil authorities are angry because of the stir they're creating. And so they arrest Peter and John, they hold them overnight, and they bring them before the high priest and his band. And the high priest and his band of leaders basically kind of get together and say, here's what we're going to do, and here's the, here's the, here's the order that they give to Peter and John. Acts 4. In order that the message of the gospel may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in the name of Jesus. Governing authorities, right? Uh, You guys can go, but hold your tongue when it comes to Jesus. So I want you to listen to Peter's response, because not only is this response markedly different from the other response, but I think in it, we find the key to unlocking what Peter intends for us in chapter two of his letter. He says this, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Do do you see the changed perspective there? Peter is throwing his arms open and saying, look, we submit to your right to judge us. Peter is saying this respectfully. He's saying it nonviolently. He's saying it with civility. There is no sword involved. But then he says this, we intend to do good. Under your authority, we intend to live as a people who are free from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you should know that as we live under your authority, we cannot help but speak the words of life to others. I mean, this is, this is an impressive transformation. At the, at the cross, Peter was very quick with the sword but slow with faith to the point that he wouldn't even make a profession in front of a servant girl. And here he is now in front of Caiaphas, in front of the high priestly leaders, and he is engaging. And he is doing so by both submitting and resisting at the very same time. You see that? With both humility humility encourage. You see, Peter is free. He's free. He is free to let God change people as only God can change people in his timing, and he is free to look at the authorities and say, you can do with me as you will. Peter is free to live, as he tells us in 1 Peter, as a servant of God, to honor everyone, to love the brotherhood, to fear God, and at the same time to honor the emperor. Once you have a version of Peter that is quick with the sword and slow with faith, and now Peter is slow with the sword, and he is quick with the greatest weapon that God has given him, and that is trust in him. And look at the boldness and the civility that it produces. So we need to ask ourselves this morning, what changed? I mean, it's not a long time period between those two scenes. What was it that changed in Peter? Well, Peter tells us in chapter four, verse 20, he says this, this is Acts 4.20. He says, we cannot help but speak of the things that we have seen and heard. I want you to hear this, friends, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, that the animating principle of Peter's engagement with the world, the thing that controlled his perspective and his vision on how to live for the kingdom of God Inside the kingdom of man is what he had seen and heard in that time period. And what was it? What had Peter seen and heard since the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, Peter had seen Jesus, his Lord, suffer and die and then rise again. He had witnessed the one who had loved him in a way that no one else had submit in the face of injustice to the governing authorities that God had placed over him. He had seen this man trust God to such an extent that it cost him his life, and then he had seen God vindicate that trust and restore justice by raising him from the dead on the third day. And you have to see this, that at some point Peter's watching this and he's listening to this, And he's he's viewing the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it's not just a good story about a good friend. At some point, the light switch flips, and Peter realizes that this is his story. That when Jesus suffered, he didn't just suffer for the general injustices of all those other people out there, but that Jesus was dying for his injustices. That Jesus had suffered under those authorities so that Peter might, excuse me, that Jesus might walk up to Peter one day soon on a beach. A dejected Peter who had failed three times and walk up to him over breakfast and touch him and heal in him a wounded and ashamed and rebel heart. At some point, Peter saw Jesus submit for Peter's sake. And so now Peter looks at us and says, you can submit for his sake. Peter bought this so much so that at the end of the Gospel of John, when Jesus tells Peter of the kind of death he's going to die, which is an unjust death, crucified as a criminal as well, that Peter joyfully accepts it and moves on to preach the Gospel because this is the will of God for him. Friends, I want you to see, it's easy to read over this, I think, if we don't take in the backstory, story, that the commands that Peter gives us in 1 Peter are not just the commands of a different perspective. They are the commands of a new heart. Peter has seen Jesus, and it has transformed him. And you say, as you sit this morning, well, I haven't seen him. I'd love to see him in the flesh. Well, Peter says in the first chapter in his letter, he says this in verse 8, he says, though you have not seen him. You love Him and believe in Him. And then in verse 12, he says this, It was revealed in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit from heaven, those things into which the angels themselves long to look. What's Peter saying? Peter is saying because of the gospel preached, in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can see and hear Jesus just as powerfully as I have. And that when you look at Jesus in His Word, when you look at Him through the message that we are proclaiming, you are looking at the very things into which the angels themselves long to look. Now think about that for a moment. The angels have seen things, haven't they? Like they've been around for a little while, they've seen a lot. And of all the things they've seen, the things into which they long to stare, Peter says, is the story not of God's love for them, but of God's love for you. And the person and work of Jesus Christ, that is the story that most captivates the angelic beings. And it did Peter, and it's supposed to for us as well. Friends, there are so many good things right now competing for your attention in life. So many good relationships, so many, I'm sure, vocational possibilities, so many responsibilities that you have to engage the world that God has given you. But none of those things can grip you and set you free and empower you to do good in all of those places. Like staring at the things into which the angels themselves long to look. That is, staring at the story in the flesh of Jesus' love for you. And as we stare, as we become a church who stares, Mark says it all the time, as we become a church that abides, what would be true of us then in our political engagement? Well, let me take a stab. What might be true of us in our political engagement as we stare at the gospel is that we are a people who seek a middle way. That is a way between pulling out the sword and fighting with the weapons of the world on one hand and hiding our heads in the sand on the other. A faithful way somewhere in between engagement in the wrong way and utter disengagement because we're so tired of how politics and religion have come together. What might be true of us is that we'll learn what it is to resist using the weapons of this world at the same time we resist condoning the presence of evil in the world. And that resistance will take the shape of our Savior to the point of suffering for us if it must, so that we are made in his image and follow after him. As we stare at the gospel, friends, I think it probably means that we'll learn to have our political commitments corrected by the gospel if we must. Because we will be free to belong to God alone and not to any specific political affiliation. And most importantly, as we stare into the gospel, we'll use, we'll learn to, excuse me, to use our imaginations when it comes to living out the story of Jesus Christ in our era. Look, I think a lot of us want to be told what to do, what to vote for, what to pursue. Peter didn't have that luxury either. He doesn't give that to us, but he had the story of a Savior, and he knew from that story how to use his imagination in his own conflict with civil governance to live faithfully. May God give us that and the power of his spirit. Wouldn't you say that there is an amazing opportunity, really an amazing opportunity, with the current state of our civil discourse to be a little bit different, to live differently as the church? An amazing opportunity as the divisions in our world grow deeper and wider To demonstrate that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus really does make a difference in how we live and honor and love one another. You know, I think in the end, that's what made Dr. King's position in Birmingham so compelling. And it's why now, almost 60 years later, all eight of those churches and denominations, in one way or the other, to which the other letter was connected, would say, We got it wrong. Dr. King was right. He was right to submit and he was right to resist for the Lord's sake under the civil authorities of his day. Maybe we never confuse the cross of Jesus Christ or the martyrs to which that followed him, that came after him like Peter. May we never confuse suffering with a failure to engage the world. It was their trust. It was their willingness to suffer for doing good. It was their cross-shaped lives in the midst of engagement with the world and their day that turned their world upside down. May that be true of us as well as we honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Amen. I'm going to pray for us now. After I do, we're going to stand up and sing together and I want you to know that there are people along the sides this morning wearing blue name tags, who would love to pray for you. It doesn't have to be about this. It can be about anything on your heart. You know, you're free to bring those things into the sanctuary. Please do, (laughs) right? And so if you have a burden, if you have something, um, a stirring by the Spirit to pray, please live in your freedom and go pray with those brothers and sisters that will be wearing blue name tags along the side. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word to us. We thank you, O Lord, that that you as our Father don't just, uh, just, don't just sort of confirm and affirm us, but that you, uh, you challenge us and you assure us in all the places we need that. And I pray that that would happen for us, O oh God, as we long to engage faithfully. Give us sanctified and renewed imaginations according to the story of your Son. Give us courage and humility to do good and to honor the authorities that you've given us to honor. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, O oh God, that you submitted civil authorities for our sake. May we do so for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.